And before we get into Revelation chapter 11, let me, uh, let me pray for us tonight. Father God, we thank you again for this time that we can have here in your house. We thank you, God, for giving us the strength to just be here tonight. We pray, God, that you would help us to just focus on you, God, and be attentive to what your spirit has to teach us tonight. May you strengthen your people, God. May you encourage and refresh us tonight. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 11 tonight. A couple things before we get into Revelation chapter 11. First of all, after 20 months, Nicole finally took some time off. So we're glad that her and her family are back visiting family in Missouri, and we just pray for them that they have a great and refreshing week. Two, Marcia was telling me right before Bible study tonight that they are getting ready to do a backburn right up against Robert and Dana's property out there at Top of the World tonight. So just pray that they continue to be safe and protected. And obviously, we need to pray for all the families and all the firefighters and everything that's fighting those two massive fires out there in the East Valley. Uh, but especially, you know, keeping one of our own in our prayers, Robert and Dana. And then just a reminder again that this coming Sunday night at 6 o'clock right here in the auditorium, we're going to be watching The Chosen. We had over 50 people show up on Sunday night to watch that. And uh, looking forward to another good group on Sunday for week two of our eight weeks of watching The Chosen on Sunday night. If you'd like to bring some refreshments, uh, there's not going to be pizza every week. Uh, we are going to have some light refreshments, but if you'd like to bring your own or something like that, you're more than, more than welcome to do so. All right. I wanted to divide Revelation chapter 11 up into two sections here. And by the way, Revelation chapter 11 really is sort of the hinge point of the book. Uh, there's Revelation chapters 1 through 11, and then you've got 12 through 22. And it, it's not just the middle point, but it really is sort of a hinge that then catapults us into the second half of the book. And there's two things that stand out in this chapter. There's the witness of God, and there's the worship of God. There's this scene on earth, and then there's a scene in heaven. And one of the things that we've seen throughout our study of the book of Revelation is that there's quite a contrast between what's going on on earth and at the same time what's going on, on in, in heaven. And we're going to see that again tonight. And as we go through looking at the witness of God and the worship of God, I want us to see just some insights that God gives us about himself. Because remember, this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a book that is unveiling for us, uncovering for us more about who Jesus is. Yes, it's about prophecy. Yes, it's about end-time events. It's about all the characters of the end-time events. But most importantly, it's about Jesus. And if we study the book of Revelation and we miss Jesus, we miss the main part. And Jesus revealed these things to John while he was on the Isle of Patmos, exiled there, for the testimony that he had and for his preaching the word of God. 
He gave this to John to strengthen his people. So even today, 2,000 years later, Jesus still wants to strengthen us, his people, by giving us this word. And what we're going to see in this first part about the witness of God is this. First of all, at every time in history, no matter how bad, how bleak, how dark it is, God always has his witness. He always has a remnant, if you will, of believers, and he always has a light. He always has those, even as we're going to see here tonight, who supernaturally are put on earth to be a light to those that can come to Christ. And remember, through the tribulation period, the darkest time in human history, there will be many who get saved. There will be many who come to know Christ even during the darkest time in history. So what does that say to us today? If God can have his witness during the tribulation period, and as we're going to see tonight, if God can protect his witnesses and preserve them until their ministry is completed, then guess what? He can preserve and protect us to be his witnesses in this day and age. So let's look at it this, this evening. First of all, notice that John is asked at the, immediately into chapter 11 to become an active participant in the vision. God doesn't want us to be spectators. He wants us to participate in what he's doing. So the Bible says, a measuring rod like a staff was given to me, John. And I was told, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and the ones who worship there. Now, this is taking place in Jerusalem. We're going to see that later on, okay, because the Bible tells us that this is all taking place at the end of verse 8 where the Lord was also crucified, well, that would be Jerusalem. So God is asking John to measure the temple of God in Jerusalem, the altar, and the ones who are worshiping there. First of all, why is God wanting him to measure this place? To measure something speaks of ownership. To measure something speaks of of being marked out for a divine purpose. To measure something speaks of God's protection and favor. And we're going to see that here tonight. Notice that the Bible teaches that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? It's all his. He created it. But in his plan, he has allowed others to come in and, in a sense, to take what is rightfully his. And that's all part of his plan. That's how he can incredibly even get glory to himself. The Bible says God uses the wrath of man to praise him. God can use Satan to bring glory to him. God can use demons to bring glory to him. God can use unbelievers to bring glory to him. So God will hand things over to those that do not know him or even those who are his enemies as part of a much bigger plan, but it's all God's, you see. It's all his. So he's measuring. Notice God is noticing those who are worshiping there. 
He notices us tonight. Who's here to worship him? And don't forget, these are people who are coming to the temple of God in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. Can you imagine what, again, that will be like during the darkest time in history? But then God says to John, do not measure the outer courtyard of the temple. Leave it out. This implies removal of divine favor. I've marked this spot off, but not that. That's not mine yet. I'm turning that over. It, it almost reminds me of, of, of what Paul said to the Romans when he said God gave them up. God turned them over to a reprobate mind. Here God is just giving over the outer environs of the temple to the Gentiles to the nations of unbelievers. And notice he says they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. I believe this is referring to the last half of the tribulation period, three and a half years. The first three and a half years, there will be somewhat of a, of a peace between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel, but in the middle part, he breaks that treaty or covenant with them, and I believe that that's when the Gentiles come in and begin to trample over the environs of Jerusalem and the temple and all that. By the way, the word uh, trample is a very interesting word. It speaks of occupation without appreciation. They occupy it, but they don't appreciate it for what it is. It is to be sacred space for God. Sort of a good reminder for us to make sure that we, the things that God entrusts to us, the things that we occupy, that we truly have an appreciation for them and that we know the source of where they come and whose they really are. They're God's and God gives them to us as gifts and to be stewards over. I will grant, verse 3, my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days. Again, three and a half years, dressed in sackcloth. Notice, God refers to them as my witnesses. God's going to have his witness even in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And where does their authority come from? It comes from God. He grants them the authority. He's the one that's going to bring these two witnesses on the scene to basically speak his word. And yes, they're dressed in sackcloth. What's that speak about? In the Old Testament, the prophet spoke or, or donned sackcloth uh, as a reminder that judgment was coming unless repentance was given. Judgment is coming unless one repents. Notice in verse 11, these two witnesses are described as two olive trees. I think this refers back to that great passage in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4. If you know the story of Zechariah, that Zechariah, the great prophet and Zerubbabel, if you will, the, the political leader of Israel, are entrusted by God to begin to rebuild the temple from the exiles who are coming back from Babylonian captivity. And they're running into one obstacle after another and one opposition after another. And these two leaders of God's people are getting very discouraged. And God comes to them and he says to them, 
not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he gives them the illustration of, of this oil. Oil represents, I think, in many times in the Bible, the, the Holy Spirit and his presence and his empowerment. And it's the idea that these witnesses will be fed with the oil of the Holy Spirit and they will be supernaturally empowered and enabled. That's the way God wants us to live, through the power of the Holy Spirit. How does he want us to witness? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples, wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you will receive power to be my witnesses. The power to witness for God comes through the Holy Spirit. And God wants us always to have, if you will, the oil of the Holy Spirit flowing through us. Jesus talked about the lamps of the virgins that always needed to keep their, their light filled with oil. You and I always need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, just like these two olive trees, literally these sons of oil that are being supplied by the Holy Spirit to do what they have been called to do. They are also referred to as two lampstands. And we know back in chapter 1, the church is referred to as a lampstand, a lighthouse, a menorah, a place that gives off light. But you and I cannot give off light properly and effectively, again, without the oil, if you will, from the Holy Spirit flowing through us. They stand before the Lord, a position of ministry to the Lord. Lord, we are making ourselves available, and you are the Lord of the earth. Yes, you gave this part to the Gentiles. You've given over this part to, to Satan. You've given this world to, you know, for him to, to usurp for a while, but it's all yours, and you're going to reclaim it one day, and you're going to make it your own one day. And that's really what the book of Revelation is about, is again, it's about the purging of evil from the earth and God setting up his kingdom for his son, Jesus, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Notice they are given supernatural ability to be able to protect themselves and preserve themselves from those who want to kill them. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes out of their mouths and completely consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed this way. God is going to protect and preserve his witnesses even during the hardest time in history. And remember, this even reminds us of a couple weeks ago when we saw the hordes of, of demon armies that were coming out of the bottomless pit. And I reminded all of us that if Satan had his way, if the demons had his way, they'd kill us in a heartbeat and not think twice about it. You and I have to realize that we can live confidently every day. We, we, we can live, you know, never in fear because we don't realize what God is protecting us from 24-7 that we don't even think about. And if God protects us from the unseen threats that are much more vicious, then God can protect us from the seen things as well. But then notice verse 6. These two have the power of God, again, from God, to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the time they are to prophesying. They have power to turn the water to blood, to strike the earth with every kind of plague, whenever they want. Who are these two witnesses? I wouldn't spend a lot of time trying to figure that out. 
Because if it was that important, God would tell us who they are. Now, I will tell you this. Many Christians believe that these two witnesses, because of the description of the things that they do here, are Elijah and Moses. Because if you read what these two witnesses do, it's very similar to some of the things that Elijah as a prophet did and Moses was able to do, right? Other Christians believe, no, it's not Elijah and Moses, it's Elijah and Enoch because those two never died. They were caught up to heaven. They never experienced physical death. And so maybe they'll come back now from heaven and then they'll finally be able to die. I don't know. I don't know who these two witnesses are. But what I want us to focus on is that God has his witness and that God is going to use these two witnesses to speak his word out into a world of darkness and that he is supernaturally providing everything they need for their ministry and he's preserving them and protecting them during the darkest most evil, most wicked time in human history. Again, this should be a strength to us. Remember, this was a strength to John, because where's John? He's on the Isle of Patmos. Why is he there? Because he was a witness to Jesus Christ. And even John needed to be encouraged. We saw that last week where God was recommissioning John by trying to encourage him to keep on speaking for me, keep on writing for me no matter what the cost is, because I'm God, and I'm in control, and I will give you everything you need, and nobody will touch you. You and I, just like these two witnesses, are absolutely indestructible until God says our time is done. Notice verse 7. When they have completed their testimony... When they're done with what God sent them to do, then and only then does God allow the beast, the Antichrist, that comes up from the abyss to make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Only then. By the way, why does it say the Antichrist comes from the abyss? Well, if you go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we read that the miracles and the things that the Antichrist can do is because he's being supernaturally provided by Satan to be able to do these things, you see. I want us, though, to really lock into verse 7. Nothing could happen to them. And it wasn't because Satan or the demons or even the people of earth did not want these two to die. They did. But they could not be killed until God said, you're done. Then God allowed the beast to conquer and kill them. Notice as we read these next few verses, what this tells us about the widespread wickedness of this time in history. You and I think it's bad now, Look at what it's going to be during the tribulation period. First of all, their corpses are going to lie in the street unheard of. These two witnesses, because the people of earth will hate them so much, 
that they will not even allow their bodies to be treated in a proper fashion, in a sense that they, they are completely desecrated even in death. They are lying in what is called Sodom and Gomorrah, where the Lord was crucified. Why are they calling Jerusalem Sodom and Egypt? Because it was two places that were extremely wicked, antagonistic toward God, and oppressive towards God's people. That's why Jerusalem, even at this time in history, is called Sodom and Egypt, because it's acting like it. For three and a half days, those from every people, tribe, nation, language will look at their corpses. There were many, I'm sure, people back centuries ago who before the age of television were reading this and going, how in the world is the whole world going to see two bodies lying dead in Jerusalem? Well, we know how that's going to happen. That, that's no big deal to us. Like, yeah, we see stuff from around the world all the time. I can absolutely see CNN showing those two dead bodies on the, in the street of Jerusalem. And everybody in the world will be able to see it because of the satellites and everything that's up there now. You see, what, what used to be so, how, how is that going to happen? Now you and I are living in the age where it's like, well, we, we can certainly see how that could happen. And they will not permit them to be placed in a tomb. Notice, those who live on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. This is the only time during the tribulation that rejoicing takes place. Because it's so bad, those seven years, that there is no other instance, at least in the Bible, where there's any kind of rejoicing that takes place. But when these two die, it's like Christmas. Why do I say that? Notice, the people of earth start sending gifts to each other because these two prophets have tormented those who lived on the earth. How did they torment them? By speaking the word of God. Think about it. What you come out on Wednesday night to hear is torment to others. I mean, that's the contrast, right? And we, we, we see that even in our day and age, where those who speak the word of God, yes, God's people embrace it, love it. But the people of the world who have not embraced Christ, oh, they don't like it at all. And they want to try to shut it down and shut us up, just like they did these two witnesses. Ah, but notice this. It's a very short-lived triumph for Satan and for the people of earth. Why? Because God always has the last word. Because God's always in control. And because God's plan is going to be accomplished no matter what the people of earth want, no matter what Satan wants, no matter what all the demons want, it is inevitable. God is going to rule and reign and reclaim his universe once again. And no one or nothing in this universe can stop him. And that should be a strength to us. So after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Literally, breath also can be rendered spirit. 
And they stood on their feet, and tremendous fear seized those who were watching them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying that to them, Come up here. So the two prophets went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies stared at them. Sounds like the ascension of Jesus, right? Sounds like the rapture. They just were caught up, back up to glory. God didn't allow them to hang around any longer because their mission, their witness was complete. I want you to take courage in that. God has a plan for your life and my life. God has a purpose for your life and my life. And when that purpose and plan is over, he'll call us home. But until that time, we're indestructible. We're indestructible. Until we have completed our testimony, our mission on this earth, our purpose, our plan, and the plan of God, we are just like these two witnesses. Why? Because God's in control. God's in control. Notice, just then, a major earthquake, verse 13, took place, and a tenth of the city clapped. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. God even knows the exact number of people that's going to die that day in Jerusalem during the earthquake. How does he know that? Because he's God. He knows everything, down to the last detail. He knows exactly who those 7,000 people are that's going to die that day in Jerusalem during that particular earthquake. And the rest who didn't die were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. See, God was even through that bringing people into his everlasting kingdom. Oh, the second woe has come and gone, and the third is coming quickly. God is interjecting these revelations in order to give both a supplementary and encouraging information to his people. He wants to strengthen his people. So what do we find in the first 14 verses? The witness of God. God will always have his witness on this earth. He will always have those who are willing to stand up and make themselves available to God and be used of God to be a light but the only way that you and I can be those lampstands is to allow the oil, the Holy Spirit, to literally flow in us and flow through us at all times. We need to make sure that we are always being filled with the Holy Spirit because the power to be witnesses comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we come to a contrast. We see what's going on on earth. But now notice what's taking place at the same time in heaven, verse 15. Then we see the worship of God. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Sorry, I can't help but read that verse and always think of Handel's Messiah. By the way, Handel is my favorite classical composer. I love Handel. I love listening to classical music, and especially those that were Christian, like Handel, who loved the Lord and honored him with their music. A couple things about this. First of all, notice 
These worship leaders in heaven are announcing the long-expected reign of Jesus Christ over the world and that it would begin soon. But let's break this apart for just a minute. There's a couple important things here in verse 15. First of all, notice that it does not say the kingdoms of the world, plural. It simply says the kingdom of the world. Why? Because 1 John 5.19 says... The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. From God's perspective, there aren't 50 kingdoms on earth. There aren't 500 kingdoms on earth. There's only one kingdom on earth now. It is the kingdom of Satan, which is why Satan could take Jesus Christ up on that mountain and show him the kingdom of the world and offer him the kingdoms of the world because they were his to give. Jesus wasn't going to settle for the kingdoms of the world. Jesus was going to wait to rule over a kingdom that was eternal, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of holiness, not earthly kingdoms that are temporary and are going to pass away. No, Jesus didn't want any of that. But that's why it's simply the kingdom of the world, because from God's perspective, the whole world is resting in the arms of the evil one. Then, notice this. The kingdom of the world, though, has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever, a kingdom without end. You see, the whole theme of Revelation is the purging of evil from the world so that it can become the domain of the King of kings and Lord of lords. But I want to point out something grammatically here. I don't want to get too, you know, into it, but this is important. In verse 15, as well as verse 17, you have this idea that the event is so certain that it's treated as if it's already passed. Did you see that? Notice, it hasn't become the kingdom of our Lord yet, but to God, it already has. Why? Because it's so certain it's going to happen. I mean, think about that. Again, that magnifies who our God is and the greatness of God and the reliability and dependability of his word and his faithfulness of his word. God is basically saying, it hasn't happened yet, but it's, it's already happened because who's going to stop it again? I, I said that this is going to happen, so it's going to happen. I mean, that's our God. He can say things that are yet to take place as if they've already happened because he's God and knows it's going to happen that way. Notice he does the same thing in verse 17. Because you have taken your great power, the last part of verse 17, and begun to reign. Well, it hasn't happened yet. But this event is so certain that God is referring to it as having already taken place. Wow. What an amazing God. And that's why God is being worshipped. It's not that like it was ever in doubt. It's not like the, you know, the, the angels in heaven, the creatures in heaven, the living creatures, the elders, the saints of all time. It's not like they were up there sort of biting their fingernails during the tribulation going, I don't know how this is going to turn out. 
Is God really going to conquer Satan and, and evil and wickedness? Is, is he really going to have the, the power to be able to purge evil from off the earth and set up his earth? There's never been any of that. They know he's got it. For them, it's just a matter of the timing of it all. God, when in your perfect timing are you finally going to enact your plan and come and reign? That, that's the only question is the timing of it, not could God do it or not? And you and I have to get there too. We, 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 we've got to get past it like, you know, the end's in doubt and, and how's this all going to turn out? And we, No, listen, we might not know what tomorrow holds for each of us, but we know the God who holds our tomorrow. And we know that he's in control. And that's what can bring strength to, to God's people, even in the darkest times, even in the most challenging times, is God's got it all figured out. And we don't have to. Verse 16, the whole then 24 elders who are seated on their thrones before God throw themselves down to the faces to the ground and worship God. Why? Because finally they realize the king of kings is about to reign. All that we've ever looked forward to, it's finally getting ready to happen. And what's their response? Worship. That's their response of this great announcement. The elders thank God for exercising his great power and finally beginning to reign. We give you thanks, Lord God, the all-powerful, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. Very interestingly, the phrase, we give you thanks, the only time this is used in the book of Revelation. Sort of even caught me by surprise. You mean there's no other place in Revelation where it talks about people giving thanks? No, this is the only time this word is used. Secondly, the word all-powerful stresses God's irresistible power and sovereignty. Let me repeat that. He is all-powerful, meaning his power is irresistible. What God has planned for this world, for this universe that he created, is inevitable because no one can stop God from doing what God said he would do. And you and I should be able to rest in that. Notice he's also the eternal God, which means he can have an eternal kingdom. He is the one who is, who was, and who is still to come. And you have taken now, finally, your great power, and again, begun to reign. Well, not quite, but it's as if it's already happened. Now notice, beginning in verse 18, the elders then continue to anticipate the beginning of Messiah's reign on earth by foreseeing certain things happening. What's going to happen when Jesus finally comes to reign? Well, notice the first thing. The nations are enraged. If you have some time tonight or tomorrow, read Psalm 2. The nations hate the fact, the leaders of this world who think they're all that and who have the power and the rule and all of that now, they hate surrendering that power to Jesus. They hate giving up their place and position and 
preeminence in this world, even to Jesus. And the people of this earth who want nothing more than what the earth has to offer, they're upset that they're finally going to lose what they've been living for all these years. They're mad. Think about it. We're rejoicing. The, the worship of, of heaven is rejoicing that Jesus is coming. We're glad that Jesus is finally reigning. But the people of earth, they're upset and angry that Jesus is coming to reign. Second, his wrath is going to come. Third, it's going to be a time of judgment. Not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer. John doesn't see a differentiation here in the judgment. He does, though, mention, oh, the time has come now to give your servants, the prophets, their reward as well as the saints. That's our judgment. We're not judged for our sin. We're judged for our faithfulness and how we live the Christian life. We're judged to be rewarded, not for our sin. And those who revere your name, who have a healthy respect and reverence for your name, both small and great, and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. The earth will finally be purged. By the way, the word destroy here is an interesting word. It literally means to corrupt. In other words, why is God going to destroy the world? and those on it because they have not used it for God's glory, but instead they've used the earth and their time on this earth to satisfy their own selfish desires. As Paul says in Romans 1, they have worshipped the creature more than they have the creator. Or as Paul says to Timothy, they love pleasure more than they love God. Corrupt. That, that's what it means to corrupt. They have not used their life, their time, the strength God gave them, the health God gave them, the resources God gave them to bring him glory. That's corruption, to use it for a purpose less than what it was intended for. That's why God says of his people, I want you to live for my glory, live for what matters most, live for what is of greatest value and worth, because anything less that we live for is corruption. We're taking what God gave us to use for his glory, and we're using it for something much less, just as the earth dwellers did. And then finally, we close with verse 19. We started out with the temple of God on earth, we now end this chapter with the temple of God in heaven. Again, this sacred space in heaven where God will meet and fellowship with his people. And notice what's present there. The ark of his covenant was visible within the temple. It's not in some warehouse in Washington. Some of you get that. Why the ark? What is the significance of the ark of the covenant? It was symbolic of the presence of God. God is saying, I'm present with my people. What was contained in the ark? The tablets of the law, his word, Aaron's rod that budded, his faithfulness, his reliability, his dependability, all of it. His presence. 
And notice, because of his presence, there were flashes of lightning, roaring crashes of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm, reminding us of the awesomeness of God's presence. Oh, my goodness, God is so amazing, so majestic, so great, so awesome, that, that his person should always fill us with wonder. And then to think... <laughs> that you and I as Christians sit here or stand here tonight with God literally living inside of us. We are the temple of the living God. Wow. What a chapter. And what a contrast. While there is wickedness and darkness on the earth, unlike any other time in history, there's worship in heaven. And rejoicing because they understand the king of kings is coming it's not a question of if he comes it's just a question of when are we ready for the king to come and as we pray thy kingdom come thy will be done one day it's gonna happen my friends that's never the question the question is only when are you coming Lord when are you coming? Are we being the witnesses, the lights that we need to be in the world that God has placed us in? To our community, to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers, to those we go to school with, to, to those we just maybe even bump into. Are we being a light and witness knowing that God wants to use us and that we are indestructible until God calls us home. Here's what we get to look forward to. The king is coming one day, and you and I are going to be part of his eternal kingdom. What a privilege. What an honor. What we have to look forward to. The best is yet to come, folks. Let's be strengthened through the word and worship of God tonight. Let's pray. God, we thank you tonight for this tremendous chapter we thank you, God, for reminding us tonight again that you're sovereign, you're in control, you're all-powerful, you're irresistible, you're unstoppable. Lord, there's no one like you. And God, we know you. We have a personal relationship with you. We walk every day on this earth with you in us and by our side. We walk with your word. We walk with your spirit. We walk with your provision of grace and everything else, God, that we need. We are empowered by you through the Spirit of God. Your holy oil flows through our veins every day. God, what a privilege, what an honor, what a gift, what a treasure. What you have entrusted to us, God, is overwhelming. So, God, I pray tonight that we would be encouraged, that we would be refreshed, that we would be strengthened in you tonight. Maybe not in the situations that we see around the world, maybe not in our own circumstances of life, but that, God, we would be strengthened in you, God, because you've got us and you've got it and you've got this world and you've got your plan and it's going to happen, Lord. It's not a matter of if it happens. It's just a matter of when because as you see it all, God, it's as if it's already taken place. God, may we see it like that too. May we see it like that too. May we see you, God, so clearly in these days of darkness. May we keep our eyes on you.
and keep ourselves filled with your spirit as we move through this world to that eternal kingdom that we're all moving toward, Lord. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. We'll see you next week.